And so Harvard, Princeton, Yale, I'm very happy to say that the leaders of these great institutions have come to realize their past mistakes, misdeeds of their predecessors, and now are trying to do their best to open admission to all qualified people, regardless of whether they're Africans, Asians, Japanese, Americans, whites, and so on, and also uh, hire professors who are truly qualified. Join Lewis and I today as we speak with Dr. Ephraim Isaac, who is the director of the Institute of Semitic Studies at Princeton University and the chair of the board of the Ethiopian Peace and Development Center. Dr. Isaac has led an amazing life, starting out in Ethiopia before coming to America, where he rose to be the individual who started the African-American Studies Department at Harvard University in the 1970s. He's had some of the most important figures in the civil rights movement pass through his classes. His work as an active peacemaker accelerated in the 1980s when he was chosen to help resolve a standoff between the Ethiopian government and rebel factions. He was inspired by his father's strong emphasis on Judaism as a religion of love, peace, and responsibility for others. But as a Jew in a majority Christian country, he appreciated that people respond best when they hear a call to peace from their own traditions. It was this insight that led him to utilize Ethiopia's traditional reconcilers and peacemakers to solve conflict. Dr. Isaac will be speaking with us today regarding the Supreme Court's recent decision on affirmative action and its effects on education and employment. You're in for a real treat from a person who was at Harvard at the beginning of affirmative action and has seen it through all these years. Welcome to What I See, the podcast where we uncover the stories of visionaries, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore the big ideas and challenges shaping our future. And now our hosts, Mark O'Donnell and Lewis Schiff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to What I See. We find ourselves once again together, Mark, uh, at the brink of probably one of the bigger topics you and I have taken on so far in the history of our podcast. Mm -hmm. So are you afraid? Are you nervous? Are you scared? Are you ready? I'm not. I'm just totally curious. Obviously, we, we take things out of the news and think about how it pertains to entrepreneurship and running businesses. And the topic today is affirmative action and the big decision the Supreme Court made just a, a few weeks ago. Yes. And that clearly makes us topical. Um, and um, Mark, you, you had suggested this as a topic a week or, or so ago, which I thought was a great one. You know, it's just at the outer edge kind of of our innovators, visionaries and entrepreneurs category. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just at the really like the outer edge because it's um, it's, it's not business business, although it has huge implications for business. Um, and it's, of course, about the business of educating as well. Um, well, the I'm, I'm going to introduce us in a moment to our special guest. But I, I want to tell a quick story about how I met him, um, because uh, for those of you who remember Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, who's passed away since then, since this, this happened, but he had this idea, which he called collisions. And the idea was that um, in the journey of our lives, we had to maximize the collisions between people. Because when two people or more collide, anything's possible. 
And um, my story of meeting our, our guest is exactly that. So, um, you know, as, as Mark mentioned, the topic is affirmative action. The reason why we're talking about it now is that the Supreme Court of the United States recently essentially agreed to sunset affirmative action as it pertains to the U.S. college and university application process, making it essentially illegal to factor in race or other categories when considering whether or not somebody should be accepted into a college. Um, and it has generated a ton of conversation. And our special guest today is Dr. Ephraim Isaac. Uh, Dr. Isaac, come on and join us when you're ready. Dr. Isaac has an illustrious career, um, primarily in academics. Hi, Dr. Isaac, we see you now. Hello, peace. Shalom. Thank you. Thank you. Peace to you. Uh, I'm so excited because we met in what Tony Shea would call a collision. Um, it's not the most glamorous story. We met at a bar, <laughs> but uh, it's an educational bar. Uh, it's a it's an educational institution that happens to have a bar. And I sat next to him and we got into talking and he was telling me about his background and I sort of caught it, but I didn't quite understand who I was talking to. But among the things is he mentioned his name to me and I went up to back to my hotel room later and I Googled him and I was I could not believe who I had been talking to. So um, so when we thought about this topic of affirmative action, we thought who better than a than a lifelong teacher to help us understand the implications, ramifications of this Supreme Court decision. Uh, but he's not just a lifelong teacher. Uh, Dr. Isaac, um, who comes from Ethiopia. When he comes to America, one of the places he ends up is Harvard, where he ends up being an instructor, professor there. And he starts in the 1970s, the African-American Department of Study, um, which is clearly connected to the topic of affirmative action. He then remarkably, after finishing his career at Harvard, ends up at Princeton, where he works on the Department of Semitic Studies. That's that's the religion of Judaism and all the languages that surround that. He um, he is an Ethiopian Jew. That's how he introduced himself to me. Um, and I happen to be Jewish, but he's much more knowledgeable about the Jewish religion than I am. Um, and today he is the director for the Institute for Semitic Studies in Princeton, continues to gather people from around the world to talk about the Semitic language and all the languages that fall under that category and their role in history. He is also, uh, the last point I want to make before we start talking to him, he is a renowned conflict deconflictor, a uh, conflict negotiator. When countries and groups cannot figure out how to get along, they bring in deconflictors. And he has a incredible global background in helping to deconflict some of the most conflicted areas of the world. So, wow, I when... Mark suggested affirmative action, and then I thought, well, what about this this person I just met at a bar? <laughs> uh, but it's no joke. So welcome, Dr. Azik. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Louis. It's a great pleasure to see you again, not at a bar, but on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was more real at a bar. Now it's just a two-dimensional version of us. Well, I thank you very much for inviting me to discuss with you or talk with you about this very 
important subject of affirmative action. Now, um, Mark, do you, I, I know uh, I want to give it over to you to, to get us talking, but I also have a thing I just want to bring up in the beginning, which is, Dr. Isaac, as we start to get into this topic of affirmative action, which is about race primarily, um, I wonder if you conform your answers partly because you're talking to two white men. Is that part of your thought process or is your way of looking at this and your way of thinking this the same for everyone, no matter who you're talking to? I don't see people as white or black, but as human beings. So I'm talking to human beings. But let me say the following. The question of affirmative action is of great importance to me because it's of great importance to a large number of the people of African origin. I came to Harvard University in 1960. At that time, there were like three African-American or African graduate students and about a dozen African-American students. Now for me, affirmative action did not mean admitting unqualified students into a great university like Harvard University. It meant reversing the historical rejection of highly qualified students of African origin simply because they were black or also, by the way, women. Less qualified white students were being admitted. Indeed, when we speak about affirmative action today, we must recognize that big universities like Harvard, Yale, Princeton have a history, an open history of, unfortunately, racism. They, let's start, for instance, with uh, uh, Yale University. Yale had a very distinguished professor called Calhoun who said, find me a black man who can read Greek and Latin, and then I'll consider black people human. This is the kind of attitude. Now, Princeton University, of course, is very well known to have been a university that worked very closely with the slave South. The first nine professors, uh, presidents of Princeton University had slaves. Indeed, at one stage, 60% of the graduating class came from slave-holding families in the South. Hmm. At Harvard, in the early 20s, Lowell, um, the president of Harvard, did not want to admit more black or Jewish students. So he made a rule that to be admitted to Harvard University, you have to qualify morally, not only academically. And why morally? Because he expected Jews and African-Americans not to be of Christian moral standard. I am very happy to say that today, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, these great universities 
have come to the recognition of the fact that they have a discriminatory slave background. Not only that, I personally can tell you more about what happened at Harvard University. When I came to Harvard, I went into the library and I started finding books that describe Africans as subhuman. My late good friend, Stephen Jay Gould, wrote a book called The Mismeasure of Man. You can read in that book that, for instance, they said African-Americans or black people have a smaller brain. Their, their face actually like have an angle that is between the wide angle of a white man and the narrow angle of a crocodile. A lot of work were written in the 19th century denigrating African people. Some German scholars, French scholars, and others have written that people of the world can be classified into four categories. The rational white, the commonsensical Asians, the phlegmatic American Indians, and the emotional Africans. As I said, uh, the famous Prince, uh, Yale University Calhoun said, if you find me a black man who would uh, read Greek and Latin, I'll consider them human. The irony is, even before affirmative action, Harvard and also Yale had admitted a few minority African-Americans. The first bl black person Harvard admitted was a man called uh, Richard Greener, who studied history and in fact ended up teaching Greek and Latin at the University of South Carolina. <laughs> it is said that even before Greener, there was an African-American brilliant fellow who served one of the Harvard presidents. And he knew Greek so well that he may have actually been admitted, but maybe not graduated. And he ended up being a tutor of Greek and Latin for the president of Harvard. Mm. The, in the, the bottom line is that African-Americans and African people also loved learning. I think it is Booker T. Washington who said the Negro worshipped the, the books. I come from a country, Ethiopia, one of the countries into which the one of the seven languages that the Bible was first translated is the African language of Ethiopia called Giz. The only ones that compare with that are Greek, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, and, and, the, and the, the first seven languages into which the Bible was translated. Mm. So African people, especially in Ethiopia and even in ancient Egypt, also believed in knowledge. So affirmative action, to me, I repeat, does not mean admitting unqualified people, but it means opening the doors that have been totally closed. Because originally in the universities, they did not admit many African, African Americans, although they were qualified, less qualified, white students were admitted 
And therefore, in 1965, when the affirmative action was uh, um, declared, it opened the door that universities can no longer deny admission to highly qualified African Americans and African people of uh, people of African origin. In short, for me then, there is a misunderstanding of what affirmative action means by people. They think it's just like as one, in fact, ironically, a black professor at Harvard who was against affirmative action in 1972 wrote in the New York Times, said Harvard was admitting too many ghetto blacks who are not qualified. I, you, I, I don't want to mention the name of this black professor, but a professor, uh, the dean or provost of Princeton University wrote back a letter to the New York Times saying, no, we are not admitting unqualified people and showed and how uh, the, the kind of education most of the black students at Princeton were admitting, most the kind of education they have received, how they are very capable. So essentially then, I am very saddened when I hear this great institution we all respect and bow before, the Supreme Court, reverses the idea of affirmative action. I have great respect for those judges, but even judges can be short-sighted. We are all human, no matter who we are. I know for a fact that when I was teaching at Harvard University, there were highly qualified black students, I can mention a whole list of them, who have risen to be very important in American business world, academic world, educational world, medical world. Some of them my own students. So mm. the misunderstanding of the concept of, uh, of uh, affirmative action then boils down to the, the following. That before the affirmative action and in the early days of the history of the United States, there was an assumption that black people, people of African origin, are intellectually inferior, cannot compete in universities. This is what you call an what you call a discriminatory intellectual ideas. And I'll, mm -hmm. let me give you uh, a suggestion to my readers. Please read the late friend of mine, Stephen Jay Gould's book, Mismeasure of Man. Why Mismeasure of Man? Some of the early scholars, even the first nine presidents of Princeton had slaves. So look at Africans are slaves. And those who believed that African-Americans are inferior had some kind of low-level anthropological analysis. They were measuring the people's heads, comparing them to, to animals and so on and so forth. And therefore, this, uh, the idea of affirmative action for me, I repeat, it's not, it does not mean that bringing a horde of unqualified people to universities, but mm -hmm. rather 
rejecting the earlier philosophy of uh, the denial of equal opportunity to people of African origin. So, Dr. Isaac, um, thank you for that. That's a mm-hmm. impassioned and that's a great education right there. A wonderful citing of references, plenty for us to go back and look into as well. The premise of that is, is that there was a period of time when there was a, a, a foundation of wrong-headed beliefs, false wrong-headed beliefs that were shared by a lot of people in power. Now, almost every company or university that brings groups of people together acknowledges and realizes that diverse groups are better than non-diverse groups. That's so, that seems to be so well understood by the academic world and, and I think significantly by the business world. Do you think that the wrong-headed beliefs of the past have been replaced with a genuine appreciation for how diversity makes outcomes better in whatever endeavor someone's involved in. Yes, thank you very much, Louis. Yes, as a matter of fact, in the last decade, the the three universities, again, I mentioned Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, have come to the realization that they have a history of uh, racism and that they must be corrected. Uh, Harvard University now, uh, of course, uh, enrolls the Sins Affirmative Action. Even while I was there, well, let me add here, before I came, they, there was not a single course on African language, African religion, African history. After I finished my doctorate in 1969, I gave the first courses in African language, African history, African religions. This is amazing. 1971. And today, uh, Harvard University has, in fact, set up a committee like Brown, who has done so, and Princeton and Yale, to correct past misdeeds of the history of slavery. The um, Yale University has changed the name of Calhoun College now to another name. Princeton has changed the name of Woodrow Wilson, who had slaves also and believed in slavery, to another name. And so Harvard, Princeton, Yale, I'm very happy to say that the leaders of these great institutions have come to realize their past mistakes, the the misdeeds of their predecessors, and now are trying to do their best to open admission to all qualified people, regardless of whether they're Africans, Asians, Japanese, Americans, whites, and so on, and also uh, hire professors who are truly qualified. Let me add a footnote here. See, some people believe Africans were admitted to Harvard, Yale because of affirmative action. There were actually some African Americans who were admitted, like for instance, to Harvard, my university. I mentioned Richard Greener, who graduated in 1865, I think. Du Bois, who received his PhD around 1890 and Carter G. Woodson. In other words, there was no affirmative action. They were not admitted to Harvard because of affirmative action. They were black. But there were many like them who were not admitted because of, unfortunately, the quota of not admitting more African-Americans. And I can mention 
a large number of Africans and African-Americans who graduated from Harvard Divinity School, Harvard uh, Medical School, Harvard Law School, which I know, who were admitted at a time when there was no affirmative action. In other words, they have always been capable, intellectually capable, qualified African and African-Americans. But there was a quota in admitting just one or two, one or two, like it's interesting that until 1969, the number of African-American students on Harvard when in the mid-60s were around less than 20. Mm-hmm. Then in so- 1971, when, of course, affirmative action was established and the university admitted its past mistakes of being discriminatory and rejecting peoples of African people as students and faculty, a hundred people, a hundred students were admitted in 1970, class of 1970. And I'm very happy I was there. Mm-hmm. I witnessed that. Yeah. And yeah. Let, me, let me interrupt, uh, Mark. Yeah. I guess my my question is, what role do you think affirmative action has played? And so prior, people had these ideas that were obviously misplaced and quite frankly sound kind of ridiculous to me that people would actually measure people's heads and and have all these types of uh, ways of thinking. When did that pendulum shift where that those thoughts started to dissipate, or are they still around today? Um, I'm just wondering. Did affirmative action do its job and it's time to move on because no one thinks that way anymore? Or there's still certainly not in my world that I know of that people think that way. But from a time perspective, did it run its course, do its job? Did it have an impact on the way people were thinking at that time? I quite frankly wasn't born yet. So (laughs) none of that type of thinking existed in any of my worlds. And that might be just where, where and when I grew up. I don't know. Any thoughts about that? Well, unfortunately, the philosophy of intellectual discrimination has its roots in slavery. At a time as when, a justification for for the inferiority of people mm-hmm. and inferiority, even intellectual inferiority. Uh, for instance. I have read articles. Well, I, I'll, I'll give you one very interesting example. I understand a Harvard professor uh, in the late uh, 20s objected not only to the admission of African-Americans, but even women. Mm-hmm. And he wrote his book in which he claimed he has done a research that... Harvard should not admit white women to the university. Why? Because he said, the more you study, the more you become intellectually strong, the the bigger your brain becomes. And the smaller your womb becomes. Your womb shrinks, your brain grows. I mean, Stephen Jay Gould mentions this too. And therefore... Dr. Isaac, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Yes, sir. Therefore, he said, White women should not go to college because white men will not be able to have children from them because mm-hmm. their womb shrinks. 
Therefore, they will turn to black women and have children who are inferior because they're part black. You see, these kind of philosophies were based in ignorance, short-sightedness, stupidity. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Many, many such researches. I can show you books uh, that are right. written. But one of, one of the concepts that was uh, written in the Supreme Court something like 25 years ago was uh, Sandra, Sandra Day O'Connor, a justice of the Supreme Court, yes. who, who basically said everything you've said, that this was a, a, a wrong that needed to be righted. But she went on to say, at some point, we will be done writing the wrong. And she had estimated it would be about 20 some odd years from now that the correction would be sufficient. In other words, the compensatory um, reaction by saying, let's make sure we consider every African-American candidate equally would that that will have been done and then the universities will now treat everyone the same regardless of race or gender and they can stop looking at race and gender at some point now she made a prediction that it was 20 some odd years Mm. hard to know when that moment actually is upon us but the idea being there would come a time in the future when we would stop evaluating people based on race and gender and and that's what it seems like this time has become, according to the Supreme Court. You- of course, the Supreme Court is a great institution, and it has always had fair, just Supreme Court leaders. You mentioned Sandra O'Connor, and the the great one who passed a couple of years ago, um, Ginsburg. Ginsburg, uh, and and there are still many important people who re- re- who recognize past mistakes and the need to correct them. For me. Affirmative action, whether it's in education or in business too, um, it doesn't mean, uh, again, uh, some or other lowering the level of uh, intellectual or uh, work capacity. It just means creating equality. In fact, maybe instead of calling affirmative action, maybe we should call it equal admission, equal or blind right. admission. Mm-hmm. Right. Blind admission. If, if if we go along that line, if we don't look at the well, when the students come to be interviewed at Harvard or Yale, maybe they should ma- wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. But that's the which idea. Would mean, yeah. It, which would mean no legacy admissions, no um, maybe not any sports admissions or anything like that either. Where everyone and and then you kind of go into well. What is the high? What is qualified for what? That's a good question. Universities, of course, interestingly, do admit a lot of students not only on the basis of intellectual or academic ability, they admit a few students on the basis of their special qualifications like sport or music. Uh, mm-hmm. But that doesn't only apply to African-Americans. I have known at Harvard, I had had students. In fact, one of them who graduated and became a 